Al Jazeera podcast. U.S. warships and planes launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. The attack came in waves. It was March 2003. This is what it's like on the receiving end. Jesus Suarez del Solar, a member of the 1st Marine Division, was standing guard outside his unit's encampment in the desert of southern Iraq. The invasion had begun a week before and the Marines were quickly approaching Baghdad, where the U.S. would declare victory a few weeks later. Jesus, however, would not be with them. The 20-year-old was killed just days into the invasion, stepping on an artillery shell. The dead Marine's father, Fernando Suarez del Solar, says he was contacted by one of his son's friends, who said the Army dropped cluster weapons on March 26th and not all the submunitions exploded. The cluster bomb that killed Jesus had been fired by the U.S. military. The U.S. largely stopped using cluster bombs after the invasion of Iraq. But last month, despite objections from U.S. lawmakers, human rights groups, and a number of other governments, the U.S. ships stockpiles of these weapons to the Ukrainian military. We recognize that cluster munitions create a risk of civilian harm from unexploded ordnance. This is why we've deferred the decision for as long as we could. So why is the U.S. sending these weapons to Ukraine? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Just months after Jesus died, Fernando Suarez del Solar traveled to Iraq to visit the place his son was killed. My son died here. I am here because this country is my country too, today. He also met with Iraqi victims of the war. Those victims included people who were injured by the same type of bomb that killed Jesus. We met with a child who was about to lose his legs because his father didn't have $100 to get the medical care he needed. Children who were blinded by the U.S. bombs, whose legs and arms have been mutilated. In the 18 years since Jesus' death, 111 countries have signed an agreement banning the production and use of cluster bombs. The U.S. is not among them. We should start by talking about what cluster bombs are, which are bombs that essentially, when dropped, are supposed to explode and release all these bomblets. In this case, close to 100 of them. Nancy Youssef is a journalist who's covered this topic extensively from both the Middle East and the Pentagon. I'm the national security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal, and I'm based out of Washington, D.C. So I started covering this beat from the Middle East in the run-up to the Iraq War at the end of 2002. And I've been covering this area either from the Pentagon or from the Middle East since that time. That includes covering the shipment of cluster bombs to Ukraine in July. The challenge with cluster munitions is because of the way they're dropped and the wide space in which they can have impact, Historically, they've been seen as weapons that can lead to more civilian casualties than other weapons because the space at which they hit and also because the dud rate. 
which varies from 2 to 40 percent, depending on the country that's producing them. The dud rate that Nancy mentioned, that's the number of bombs that don't explode on first impact. And so I think for a lot of people, the idea that the U.S. was providing weapons that could potentially lead to civilian casualties is what created so much attention around this weapon choice to provide the Ukrainians. Globally, cluster munitions have killed tens of thousands of people after the conflicts in which they were fired ended. The small bomb fragments are often brightly colored, leading children to mistake them for toys. Shepherds step on them while tending their flocks. Farmers accidentally detonate them while tilling their fields. The U.S. explanation for providing them to the Ukrainians is that these are being used by Ukraine in defense of their country and that this is a weapon choice that they've asked for. So that is the distinction that they've chosen to make while saying that they don't plan to use them themselves. So when they provided these weapons, these weren't newly created weapons, but weapons sort of in their stockpiles that they had kept, they said, for emergency self-defense purposes. The Biden administration announcing a new aid package for Ukraine, which includes controversial cluster bombs. The weapons have stirred up concerns over possible civilian casualties. The U.N. Secretary General rights groups and some fellow Democrats for his decision to supply cluster bombs to Ukraine. The U.S. made the announcement the first week of July this year. But cluster bombs have already been used on the battlefield of this conflict, mostly by Russian forces. So the announcement was made, and around July 20th, we started hearing from Ukrainian commanders that said we have received them and we've started using them in the battlefield and that we find them to be effective. I should note that this is not the introduction, though, of cluster munitions in this war. They have been in place and used by the Russians since the invasion itself. But this was the first time we had U.S.-provided cluster munitions on the battlefield on behalf of the Ukrainians. What the Ukrainians have also said is because they've used so much artillery in this war and at levels that I think were unimaginable at the start of it, at least from the U.S. side, their argument is that not only will we use them in places like the front lines of the counteroffensive where we need to sort of break through, but that use of these will reduce the number of artillery we need to use to break through that front line. So that's been the sort of two-pronged argument that they've made in support of using cluster munitions. The U.S. has said it will monitor the use of the weapons. Though the U.S. military has lost track of millions of dollars worth of arms that it's provided in other conflicts. They have argued that in the case of Ukraine that they've been relatively good at it. I think it's easier with more sophisticated systems, bigger systems, rather than artillery or small rounds or cluster munitions because of the volume of them, how easily they are transported it becomes much, much harder. The, the way that we'll track them is not necessarily that we sort of count them as they're being deployed in Ukraine, but in terms of their effect, both if we see the Ukrainians using them effectively, but also if we see instances of dud rates in which they're not used or used improperly. But I think in terms of coming up with a tally, it becomes much, much harder the larger the volume and the less sophisticated the system is. It's much easier to track a tank than it is to track a bullet or a cluster munition. There's a system in place for monitoring the weapons sent to Ukraine. But the U.S. is still reliant on the Ukrainian military to follow those protocols. 
I think the other way that we sort of hear about it, frankly, is also in repairs that need to happen for these weapon systems. The Ukrainians are using them so aggressively that they're increasingly asking the U.S. for help on sort of repairing parts, getting new parts in. A lot of them are driven in by way of Poland. The Ukrainians are in contact with their American counterparts in the region to talk about how to better use these weapons. And I think in that way, that has become an unofficial tracking system as well, because when they're telling their American counterparts, here's what we need to repair this weapon, the U.S. will ask, where is this weapon being used? How is it being used? So it's become an unofficial database as the war has gone on. The shipments also show how reliant Ukraine's military has become on the U.S. The Ukrainians say they're fighting a shared enemy. And while the U.S. is providing the weapons, they're providing the lives. Nancy says that's the type of connection that Ukrainians make when they talk about this war. What I hear is that they see it as integral, that they cannot fight this war without U.S. and Allied-provided weapons And in fact, they're often asking for more weapons at a faster pace so that they can launch their offensive more effectively from their perspective. And given the number of weapons that the U.S. has provided, 40 billion worth in two years of war, it's an extraordinary number. It's more than the budgets of most militaries around the world. So it really gives you a sense of how much the U.S. is arming the Ukrainians. The next closest allied partner to provide weapons to the Ukrainians is the U.K. at $4 billion. So the U.S. really has been leading in terms of the number and types of weapons that it has provided Ukraine. The U.S. and Russia both publicly say they're avoiding direct conflict with each other. But the question remains, if the U.S. is providing weapons... Are they fighting by proxy? Well, that's the Russian argument, right? That the U.S. can say that they're not there and that they're not fighting the Russians directly. But the Russian argument frequently through the war has been that by providing these weapons, you are an integral part of this war. And so it it really depends on how you define war fighting, really. Do you have to be there? Is it your weapon systems? I think the Ukrainians would say war fighting is the people who are on the front lines. And those are Ukrainians. They're not Americans. And so I think everybody has a different definition. The U.S. definition, of course, is that we are not fighting this war. We are supporting a partner and that this is Ukraine's fight. And you'll hear that most frequently when you ask U.S. officials, what's the definition of success? They will always say that is up to the Ukrainians, which I think is one way that they're trying to say this is not our fight because we're not defining success or failure. That is up to the Ukrainians. So, Does the argument that the Ukrainian military has no other option than to use cluster bombs hold up? We'll talk about that after the break. The Inside Story podcast dissects, analyzes, and helps define major global stories. We get into the details with experts who explain how policies affect people. The Inside Story podcast by Al Jazeera. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Nancy Youssef is U.S. national security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. And we're speaking about why the U.S. would ship cluster bombs to Ukraine, weapons the U.S. no longer uses itself for several reasons. Munitions like cluster munitions are a threat to those who fire them again because of the dead rate. And because you could launch a cluster munition aiming for a foe and it hits such a wide swath that it hits a a soldier nearby, for example. And I think the combination of the fact that there are more sophisticated options, 
the risk to you, the troops that are firing them, and the risk to civilians, not only during the conflict itself, but for the months and years afterwards that have made them, for the U.S., unattractive in most scenarios to use. There has been one documented use of cluster bombs by the U.S. since 2003. Other U.S. allies have been less careful. This is Yemeni journalist Hussein al-Bukhaiti speaking to Al Jazeera in 2016. I want to show you something. They have to stop bombing Yemen. I was in Saada province, north of Yemen, and I was handed okay. those cluster bombs by children. The Saudi keep dropping those bombs almost every day. Those are American-made bombs. It's heartbreaking to see when children or other civilians are harmed by weapons in their own country for a weapon that is so unpredictable. And so you do see examples of it. And I think I would note that cluster munitions are never the single answer to sort of breaking a front line. And even the Ukrainians would say this. And so I've seen evidence of it. I've seen evidence of its effectiveness as well. They demand a level of sophistication in some ways that more sophisticated weapons don't because of the impact that they can have. It's knowing what the dead rate is, it's trying to reduce the dead rate, it's really finding ways to use them that both um, have impact on your enemy and minimize the impact on civilians. Because often when we talk about the U.S. or allies or any nation launching a war, it's not just taking territory and taking back territory, but it's also public messaging. And if the message is that these wars are harming the innocent, that affects, I think, some of the outcomes that, that people are seeking when they launch wars. The U.S. already spends millions of dollars each year to clean up unexploded munitions in other countries, including some that were dropped by the U.S. and Laos more than 50 years ago. The Pentagon has already budgeted for demining in Ukraine whenever the conflict ends. One of the arguments we heard from the U.S. is that's part of a huge amount of cleanup that's going to happen, have to happen, when this war ends. Not just for cluster munitions, but the amount of just munitions in general that are being launched in this war. The destruction of historical sites, the destruction of communities, the rebuilding of a country that will be necessary if the outcome is such that Ukraine prevails. And so... When they talk about that, it's really part of this massive effort. I think so many people think that the war ends when the Ukrainians are able to push Russia out. But what they're talking about is that the end of one war, but the beginning of a, a years-long effort to rebuild the country and clearing cluster munitions will be part of it. But only one part of dozens, if not hundreds, of um, types of funding that will need to go into place to rebuild these communities in the post-war period. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has said that the cluster bombs being sent to Ukraine leave fewer unexploded bomblets behind than others. But it's unclear how that's being measured. Russia's been using cluster munitions with high dud or failure rates of between 30 and 40 percent. In this environment, Ukraine has been requesting cluster munitions in order to defend its own sovereign territory. The cluster munitions that we would provide have dud rates far below what Russia is providing, not higher than 2.5%. I would just say this, that we don't know the methods which the U.S. is determining that rate. What kind of tests are they doing? How many are they doing them? Under what conditions? 
the rate, as I mentioned, is goes from 2 to 40% depending on the munitions. But journalistically, I've never seen the actual test, the assessments that they're doing to make that assessment. So it's hard for me to sort of say with certainty that that's the rate without knowing the kind of test, because the kind of test could lead to different outcomes, arguably. If you dropped it at different ranges in different places on different landscapes, could it lead to something different? And without having that data, it's hard for me personally to make a conclusive assessment that the dud rate for U.S. created or supplied munitions is 2%. Whatever the actual number, what is clear is that these weapons will pose a threat even after combat ends. I think so often we talk about U.S. support to Ukraine in terms of amount and broad terms, but I think it's really important to have a conversation about what kinds of weapons we're providing, what is the short-term impact, what is the long-term impact, because it's so easy to sort of point to numbers, but what you're really getting at is that this is having effects, not just on the battlefield, but on communities in Ukraine, and that's, I think, a conversation worth having. And that's the take. This episode was produced by David Enders and Ashish Malhotra, with Amy Walters, Sonia Bagat, Chloe K. Lee, Miranda Lynn, Khaled Sultan, Zaina Bezer, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is the take's executive producer, and Nay Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs> 